Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as you can see from this, Matthew is definitely giving us short glimpses of segments of Jesus' ministries. And as you remember from our study of Matthew, as we've been comparing what Matthew will bring out in an account to what Mark or Luke is saying, a lot of times we've noticed that Matthew's account is really concise and very brief, where Mark and Luke will bring in a lot more detail. We're not going to compare this story here to Mark and Luke tonight because Mark and Luke don't have this one. You're going to see a situation down the road as we get further in our study of Matthew that there will be another situation with Bartimaeus, the blind man, coming and all that. That's a different episode later on in Jesus' ministry. But at this point, what I want you to see, though, is that Matthew's purpose, even in just giving these little glimpses, little concise segments of Jesus' life, he has a purpose, though, in doing that. And that purpose has been revealed to us already at the beginning of our study in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 1. And be reminded about how this passage and this whole book started. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you remember from our original beginning study of the book of Matthew, we see that that introduction is extremely important, that Matthew is writing to Jews so that they would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is a Greek word for what we know in the Hebrew word, Messiah. And so Matthew's purpose is to communicate to his hearers, who are predominantly Jews, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And he's also not only the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, but also who? There in Matthew 1.1. The son of David. And that's important, because the Jews knew the prophecies that the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David. And the Jews knew that this son of David, this descendant of David, was going to come and be the one to fulfill the prophecies. So uh, we're going to look at that in just a second. But I just want to remind you that Matthew's purpose is to get his hearers to understand, who are predominantly Jews, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of David. Now, at the same time, John, his hearers, when he wrote... He wrote to his hearers who were mostly Greeks, not Jews. And that's why a lot of times if you study John's gospel, he'll say that they went by the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And he would use the terms they would understand. John, when he writes his gospels to his readers who aren't Jewish predominantly, he explains the Jewish customs to them. But John also brings out something in his gospel that kind of ties to what we're looking at here. Go with me to John chapter 20. 
In John chapter 20, look at verses 30 and 31. John, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So was John recording everything that Jesus did? No. Did Matthew write down everything that Jesus did? No. Did Mark write down everything that Jesus did? No. Neither did Luke. Oh, by the way, there is a scripture that says, we're about to head there, John chapter 21. Very good. Susan's awake tonight. This is awesome. Luke, Luke, John 21, look at verse 25. Look at what it says there. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So keep that in mind as we're doing this study of Matthew. And, G and Matthew keeps bringing out this little bit about Jesus' life and this little bit about Jesus' life. And he's leaving other details off like the other Gospels bring out. Don't get off upset about that or freaked out by it. His purpose is to point out that Jesus is the Christ. These things have been written so that you know that Jesus is the Christ and that he's also who? The son of David. The son of David. Go back to our passage in Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us. Who? Son of David. The fact that they called him Son of David out loud was their way of saying, We believe you are the one that was prophesied about. I'm going to take you on a quick little study real quick to go back to the Old Testament to these prophecies, just some of them about the son of David. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. This is in the situation where David wants to build God a house and he wants to build God a temple. And interestingly enough, when he... When he tells Nathan the prophet about it, Nathan the prophet's first answer is, hey, whatever's in your heart, go ahead and do it. And then God had to go to Nathan the prophet that night and say, hey, whoa, 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 I didn't say yes. You have to go back and tell him you're not the one I chose. But then in that God telling him that he's not the one that he chose to build the temple, but he's chosen his son Solomon to do it, God makes a promise, though, to David. Look at in chapter 7, uh, verses 40, uh, sorry, 8 through 13. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God makes a promise to David, and he says, look, there's going to be a time where I'm going to take your people, the people of Israel, and bring them into their land, 
And at that point, from that point forward, nobody will ever kick them out. No one will ever treat them badly anymore. From that time forward, the nation of Israel is going to be protected. By the way, has that happened yet? No. They've been continually going through the stuff that the prophecies also said would happen prior to this time. But he also then he says, after you've died, after you've gone and slept with your fathers, I'm going to have a descendant from your own body, from your own lineage, that's going to come, and I'm going to set up his kingdom and that kingdom will last forever. Now, as progressive revelation happens, and what I mean by that is God gives us prophecies, but then little by little He gives us more and more and more. And when you put them together, it's called progressive revelation. You start to see a clearer picture. That's why back in Genesis chapter 3, God says in verse 15 that a seed or a descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. But we don't know who that is. But over time, we start to see progressive revelation where it becomes to be revealed who it is in time. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. All we know now is that a descendant of David is going to become king and rule and reign over the nation of Israel, and his kingdom will last forever. In Jeremiah 23, look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So here's another pro prophecy again about this branch. Go ahead. That's Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Yep. And that's, we see another prophecy here where it talks about this one that's going to come from David's lineage. And he again is going to rule and reign and he's going to rule wisely. And his name is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. And again, Israel is going to dwell securely. We see these prophecies coming together. But again, that word branch, a lot of your Bibles have is at a capital B, don't they? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 5. Isaiah and Jeremiah's ministries were around the same time. Isaiah started his ministry a little earlier than Jeremiah. They overlapped a little bit, but Isaiah's ministry came to an end before Jeremiah's came to an end. In Isaiah chapter 11, listen to verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. By the way, does anybody know who Jesse is? That's David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here again we see some more of the prophecy here being revealed right around the same time. I think a little earlier than the Jeremiah's prophecy. But again, that this shoot from the stump of Jesse, a descendant of Jesse's, we know now was David. And from David came a branch. And this branch is going to have the Spirit of God. And actually, if you do the math... I've actually marked it down in my Bible. You'll see the seven spirits of God here, just like you see in the book of Revelation. 
that there were the seven spirits of God before the throne. You see there, there was going to be the Spirit of the Lord, one, is going to rest upon him, the Spirit of Wisdom, two, Spirit of Understanding, three, Spirit of Counsel, four, Spirit of Might, five, Spirit of Knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord is number seven. Again, the seven spirits of God. He's going to be God himself. We actually know from Isaiah, we're not going to take the time to have you turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it said that his name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we know the prophecies have been saying that this descendant of David, this son of David is going to come and be the one who rules and reigns in Israel. And when he rules and reigns in Israel, there will be a time of peace like there's never been. And never again will the nation of Israel be disturbed or bothered by their enemies and his kingdom will last forever. Now, if you're a Jew, you'd be kind of looking for this guy almost every day, wouldn't you? I mean, because you, you know their history. You, you know what they've been through in their whole time period. And a lot of it's because of their disobedience to God. He had already told them, you obey me and we'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to have you guys go through some hard times. And they've been doing that. At the same time, the Jews were looking for this Messiah. They knew that this one was coming, this son of David. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he's definitely a pretty powerful figure. And these two blind men call him son of David. We go to Luke chapter 1. We see more of the prophecy being revealed at the birth of Jesus. Actually, at this time, the conception of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, progressive revelation, more being revealed. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, now we know who this promised one is, according to the message of God through the angel. It's who? Jesus. But not everybody understood that. Not everybody heard what Mary heard. And so Jesus comes on the scene. Go with me to John chapter 7 and look at verses 40 through 43. John chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. By the way, we didn't even done that study there was a prophecy made to Moses that God was going to raise up a prophet like him to be leader over his people. Some say this is the prophet. Others said this is the Christ or the Messiah. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now, did Jesus come from Galilee? Yes and no. His family was from Nazareth. But if you know the story, he was actually born in Bethlehem. Remember, mom and dad had to go before they even had any sexual relationship. Well, they were betrothed to each other, a legal engagement. They had to go down to Bethlehem for the census. And it just so happened by coincidence, if you will, God incidents that while she was there, she had to give birth. And she gave birth to him in Bethlehem, just like the prophecy said. And then they went back in time to a 
following circumstances instead of events, and he spent most of his time up there in Nazareth, in the hometown of Nazareth. So the people were divided. Some were saying, this has got to be the prophesied one. This is the one. This is the Christ. And they say, wait a minute. He's going to be a descendant of David, but he's not going to come from Galilee. He's going to come from Bethlehem. They didn't understand that he would actually been born in Bethlehem. Go to Acts chapter 2. Verses 29 through 36. Peter's preaching. This is the end of his sermon as the Holy Spirit's empowered him at Pentecost to get up and preach. In Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." When Jesus came on the scene and he was preaching and sharing the message and the good news of the kingdom and offering the kingdom to the people of Israel, there was confusion about him, but there were some that by faith believed that he was the promised one. Now, the disciples themselves, they believed that he was the promised one, but did they fully understand? No. They knew this much. There's something about you. And we believe you are the one, even though we don't fully understand what that means. Did they understand that the promised one was going to come and die for the sins of the world, like the prophecies also said? No, they missed that part. There's a lot of his life that was prophesied that they weren't grasping. They jumped on to the fact that there was going to be this one who's going to come from David, and he's going to rule and reign over Israel. And, and, and from that time on, there won't be any more wars, and they'll never be chased out of the land again. They'll dwell securely, and they were pretty much excited about that day. And that's why they kept trying to make him king. And he said, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. His reason why he came the first time was to be that sinless sacrifice that the prophecies had also been talking about through the Passover and the sacrificial system. And that's what he came to do the first time. But listen closely to me, folks. That's why you must believe that he's coming again and ruling and reigning on this earth literally or else the prophecies won't be fulfilled. He's going to come back and he is going to rule and reign over the world, from Jerusalem. It's not symbolic. Those who view that the end of the time on the earth is the amillennial view, that there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, that it, He just comes and takes us and we all go to be in, with Him in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. He's coming back to this earth and He's going to set up a literal kingdom on the earth and the prophecies all will be fulfilled. Everything in me wants to take you down that road and do that study with you, but go to my Revelation study, go to my Ezekiel study, and you'll hear that on the website. But in calling Jesus the son of David, they were saying, the blind men were saying he was the promised one, the one prophesied about, even though they may not have fully understood, like most, what that meant. So when Jesus enters the house, as we go back to Matthew chapter 9, he enters the house he's going to, the blind men come in and they approach Jesus for the healing of their sight. When they say, have mercy on us, you'll find that that was a very common phrase to say, heal me, help me with my problem. 
Jesus asked him an interesting question. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Of course, they say yes. Jesus' response was, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, we're going to deal with a question about that in just a second. But before I go any further, let me remind you what we studied earlier in our study of Matthew. Sometimes God does heal in response to our faith. But sometimes God heals when there's no faith involved. I want to caution you about those who would take this verse here where Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say yes. And then he says, according to your faith, may it be done to you. There are bad teachers out there that will say to you, the only reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. And that you're only healed according to your faith. That doesn't line up with the scriptures. Don't build your doctrine or allow anybody to build you a doctrine for you from one passage of scripture, but let the whole of scripture speak. And I'm going to show you that sometimes faith is involved in the healing and other times it's not, which blows up that whole, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. Let me, let me show you. He asked, if you read the scripture, he said, do you believe that I am able? Mm -hmm. Faith was that whether he was able to or not, not whether he was going to. Well, and not just faith that he was able, but some people might believe that he's able, but that doesn't mean God's going to heal you. Right, but he, I don't think that in this case, Jesus was saying that your faith that you think I'm going to is going to heal you. I think he was asking, do you believe I am able? Well, he definitely was. But what I'm saying to you is that there are people that will take this passage and say, See, it's tied to how much faith you have in his ability to do it or willingness or whatever. That's not what this is saying. Go to, I'm sorry? It, yep. There's going to be lots of times that you'll see that as an example of some. I'm just going to show you some scripture, some examples of faith that was tied to the healing and some that it wasn't. Go to Matthew chapter 8. You're right here in Matthew chapter 9. Go back to Matthew chapter 8 and look at verse 13. And the centurion said to Jesus, go, sorry, centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. We've already done this study, the faith of the centurion, where he just said, you, just need, you don't need to go to my house. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, as you have believed, it'll be, it'll be done. Because you believe like that, you got it. Go to Matthew 9. Look at verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again, this healing was precipitated by what? Their faith. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 28. The woman who had a daughter who was being oppressed by a demon... And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Again, a preacher could just take you down that road, show you those four passages that I just showed you here in Matthew 9, our passage for tonight, the one in Matthew 8, the other one in Matthew 9, here in Matthew 15. And they could convince you that if you have enough faith, God will heal you. But I'm going to show you from Scripture that you, God will heal sometimes, and it's not even tied to your faith. Go ahead. Well, it doesn't mention the person being healed. In which one? 
at all. The person that got healed didn't say right. about their faith. Well, uh, and, and exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the whole point. That's it was his faith, not exactly. And if you know it, it was all of their faith with the paralytic and all that. Again, there's the danger of trying to turn it into a formula. If you remember our study on this, I, I spent a whole study on avoid trying to find the formula for healing that makes you God and not God God. Go to go to Matthew chapter eight again. Go look at verses fourteen and fifteen. This is right after he said to the centurion, "As you have believed, let it be done for you." In verse fourteen, it says, "And when Jesus entered Peter's house." He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. He just walked in, healed her, and that was it. There was no request. There was no prayer. There was no, he just walked in, got her better. Luke 22. Yeah, he wanted supper. <laughs> I remember as a kid, the whole house shut down when mama got sick. I do remember that. Luke 22, look at verses 47 through 51. In Luke 22, look at verses 47 through 51. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to Judas, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Did Jesus heal that guy because he had faith for Jesus to heal him? No, that guy wasn't coming in faith. That guy was coming in disbelief and coming to arrest him. But Jesus healed him. Folks, beware of those who try to turn healing into some kind of a formula from the scriptures. All they're looking for is the secret formula that makes them in control of the healing and not God. Does God heal? Yes. Does he have the power to heal? Yes. Is he able to heal? Yes. Is he willing to heal? Yes. But that doesn't mean he always will, because for his purposes, he has times that he says yes, and other times that he said no. Just like you just brought out with Paul asking three times that whatever it was he was wrestling with, this thorn in his flesh, God says, no, for my purposes, I'm going to leave it. So here's your tough theological question. Going back to these two blind men, let me ask you the question. Did Jesus know already or not know that they believed he was able to heal them? Of course he did. Well, then why does he ask them when he already knows the answer? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? You say so that they would think about it and the other people. Go ahead. Profession of faith, which is very good. Keep going. There's lots to this. As you're about to see from Scripture, he's trying to pull things out of us when he already knows, but it, we must profess it. At the same time, he's asking this question for the benefit of the people around and for us as well. Just like with, oh, you're reading my notes again. Go to, go to John chapter 11. She said, just like with Lazarus. I love it. I love it when the Spirit of God is showing people the same stuff he's been showing me in my study. And you're already there tracking with me. That's wonderful. John chapter 11, look at verses 38 through 42. John chapter 11, Jesus, as he's in this story of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. By the way, has anybody thought about that? It says, Martha, the sister of the dead man. 
Why doesn't he say Martha, the sister of Lazarus? Why do you think he's saying it? They're pointing this out over and over and over. He's dead. Oh, he swooned. No, he didn't swoon. He's dead. They keep saying it. If you go back and look at the study and you want to have some fun, read the whole story and see how many times it says he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Jesus said he's sleeping now, but let's go back. And his disciples are like, man, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. Jesus goes, he's dead. All right. See, the Jews had this mindset that your spirit hovered over your body for a few hours or a few days. But if you made it to the third or fourth day, you're definitely dead. Go ahead. Why did they bury him by the sundown? Are you talking Jesus or Lazarus? I'm sorry? For Jesus' situation, it was because of the Sabbath was coming. It was, and, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know where you're talking that they had to have him buried by sundown in a certain instance. I know Jesus, again, I don't know of that Jewish tradition is what I'm saying. If you could show me where that is, I, I know that in Jesus' case they had to because the Sabbath started at that sundown. And once that, that sundown happened, they weren't allowed to do any kind of work. And so they had to get him in the tomb before they could, had to get home because the Sabbath rules and they couldn't do anything. So I know in Jesus' case they had to have him in the tomb before I've not heard that they had to be buried before sundown. Don't know. That's a good question. Doesn't it say in the Bible the day, the, the first day was in the evening, and it starts in the evening and goes... Right, right. In the Jewish mindset, the, the, it started around 6 p.m. to the next day. So the evening would be in the morning sometime. Well, no. no it just, that's the beginning of the day in their timetable. But what I, what I want you to hear is this. The story keeps pointing out he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. All right, but keep reading now. All right. So Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he prayed out loud, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. I just said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you, said, that you sent me. Again, did Jesus have to pray out loud? No. He prayed out loud for the benefit of the people that they would hear and understand more. Let me, let me take you to John chapter 12. Look at verses 27 through 30. In John chapter 12, go ahead, Thomas. I was going to say, even back in verse 4, he said, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Exactly. He even knew what God's purpose was for it. But again, he's trying to get glory for himself and glory for the Father through the situation. And remember what you just said, because I'm about to... Bring something out right along that line. Go to John chapter 12 again, verses 27 and following. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now the crowd stood there and heard it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Uh, uh, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So why does Jesus ask these two blind men out loud in front of all these people, do you believe I'm able to do this, when he already knew the answer to the question, for their sake they needed to profess their belief and their faith, and at the same time it's also for the benefit of the people around that they would learn and know. I'm going to say something to you here, and I want you to hear me. Much, and I'm going to say it a couple of times because I really want this to sink in, much, if not all, of what happens in your life is for the purpose of you coming to know who God is more and that you learn to trust Him more. I'm going to say it again. 
Much, if not all, of what happens in your life is being orchestrated by God so that you would come to know more of who He is and His power and His provision and His love and all of that, and that you would learn to trust Him more. You are going to be continually brought into situation after situation after situation. How many times have you been in a situation and you're like, oh, dip, we really need God, and you pray. And God comes through and you're like, oh, and then right when you think it's all better, there's a setback. Anybody ever had that? Over and over and over. And have you all been in the hospital for a lengthy period of time? And everybody, they start texting everybody, he's better. And then the next day, pray, 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 he's crashing. Oh, he's better. He's crashing. And we're like, what's going on? Let me tell you what's going on. God's continually orchestrating your life so that you would come to know him and to know him better. And much of what happens, if not most of what happens, if not all of what happens to us, is God's design so that we would come to know him more, trust him more, learn more about him, like you just shared and others have shared. It's for his glory, but at the same time, he teaches us that it's not really about you, it's more about me. <laughs> it's not always about you getting what you want, but me getting what I want, as you're going to see in just a little bit in our study. God keeps revealing to us that he's God and we're not. Oh, but then he does things in our lives that blow us away and surprise us. And we say, wow, I got to be honest with you. I've been a little embarrassed by how blown away I have been in this pastor search process that I've been walking this church through by how God is blessed with a pastor beyond what I could have dreamed for this church and faster than I ever could imagine. And I have to be honest and say, I really didn't believe he was going to do it like this. Well, Jim, you heard you teaching them to trust God and seek God's man. Yeah, but deep down, I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. I didn't expect this. But I'm learning more about who he is. And he's growing in my understanding. And so will be the same for you. And sometimes what you go through will also be God showing you you're not in control. Because we want him to just keep doing the miracles that make us go, wow, I like that. Wow, I like that. Wow, I like that. Sometimes you're going to have an answer that you don't like. Are you going to understand that he's God and you're not? That's all part of it. That's all part of it. Once again, we see Jesus tell them not to talk about what he did. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Go ahead. The, she was asking about the burial within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. If you go look at John eleven seventeen, it they had they had already put him in the tomb. He didn't go in the back bedroom. Jesus went to it says he... Oh, yeah. Right. He would put him in the tomb. Oh, no, he was definitely already buried. Her question was, why does the Jewish uh, uh, tradition say they have to be in before sundown? I don't know of that tradition. I'd like to see where that is. I know in Jesus' case, he had to be in before sundown because of the Sabbath was that special sundown. But all right, next thing is this. We see Jesus tell them not to talk about what he did, but they told of it anyway. Remember how we've been dealing with this a lot? We've already been dealing with the fact that God's going to get his message out, even though we're disobedient. Now, before I go in a little further, uh, he's not always wanting us not to speak. We've seen enough of Jesus saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody in our study that we could easily surmise, well, we're not supposed to tell anybody. No, no, no. Uh, let me take you back to Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, look at verses 18 through 20. This is after he heals the demoniac, the man with the legion of demons. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So in this case, Jesus says, go tell people. But he tells them specifically where he wants them to go. Years ago, I was doing a pastor's conference at Lake Yale. And at one of the breaks, I just finished a session on, from my book on God, how God doesn't duplicate a method. My book that I've written on principles of a God-centered church. And that first principle on how I was walking people through how even though God doesn't change and his word doesn't change and his truth will never change. He kept changing his methods so that we would continually say, what do you have in mind? What do you have in mind? I had a pastor come to me during the break and he said, I think I'm with you. He said, but what you're sharing with me goes against everything I've been taught. I said, how's that? He goes, I've been taught as a pastor. You find out how Jesus did it and then you tell the people you go do it that way, too. Or you see how Paul did it and you say, you go do that too. I say, the problem with that is, in this instance, he did it this way. In this instance, he did it that way. What are you going to tell him? In one instance, in John chapter 3, Jesus has the most loving conversation with a Pharisee, Nicodemus. And he says, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Yet in Matthew 15, the disciples come to Jesus and say, don't you realize what you said offended the Pharisees? And he says, who cares? Let them go. They're blind leaders of the bind. So how do you treat Pharisees? Do you reach out to them in love? Or do you say, let them go and just keep doing it? You've got to be led of the Spirit. Jesus many times would say, don't tell anybody what I've just done. Then others, he'd say, go tell. You're going to see when we get to chapter 10 in our next study that Jesus, when he sends out his disciples two by two, he's told them specifically who to go to and who not to go to. So I want you to hear this. He's not always wanting us not to speak, but there are times for his reasons and his purposes. He wants us to wait until he says to speak so that his plan will be accomplished in his time in his harvest field. We're going to jump to the very end of our passage for tonight. Go to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you see it? We've been taught for years that Jesus said the fields are one into harvest, but the laborers are few. And we don't have enough people out there sharing the gospel. We don't have enough people going out. We need to have more people. Have you ever heard the preacher say, we need more, we need more, we need more. But that's not what Jesus said. He said the fields are white unto harvest. The laborers are few. But don't take it into your own hands and come up with your own strategy to reach the neighborhood. Pray and ask God for him to show you his plan in his time and his way, how he wants to use you in his harvest field. To his glory, just like with Gideon. To his glory. In John chapter... <laughs> exactly, there's going to be few laborers because there's a narrow road of people that even are going to be laborers. You're right. But at the same time, in John chapter 7, his, his brothers don't really believe in him. And they say to him at the feast, hey, if you're going to be a public figure, why don't you go show yourself to the pe people at the feast? And Jesus says to them, for you, any time is right for me. It's not time. But then later on, he goes quietly. And at the greatest day of the feast, stands up in front of everybody and says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He waits and says, not time. But then at a certain point, it's time. Folks, let me just tell you, I want you to learn to be led of the Spirit. One of the things we've been, as parents, over the years trying to instill in our own lives and also in the lives of our children is every decision you have, make sure God is the one that's leading you in it. 
How many people have said, well, God's given me a brain. He wants me to use it. No, he wants you to listen to him. He wants you to walk with him. And sometimes he's going to say, speak, and you need to speak. There's going to be other times he says, hold off for right now. But Lord, they really need to hear. I actually was on a golf course yesterday afternoon playing in a Christian men's league on the afternoon. I had a chance to go play with them. And one of them was a young man named Michael. Michael doesn't know the Lord. Actually, Michael knows words I've never heard before. And he put a couple of words together that I've never heard put together before. And I'm telling you, at first, everything in me was like, I really need to say something to him about this. But he knew who we were. He kept calling your pastor preach. That's what he called him for short, preach. He knew we were Christians. He knew that, that Rich was a pastor. And everything in me wanted to pull this guy off to the side and say, I really wish you wouldn't use my Lord's name like that. And the Spirit of God kept saying, you leave him alone. I'm working on him. He's not your project. He's my project. And you just love him. And I kept my mouth shut. Oh, there might be some of you out there listening right now that are judging me because I didn't speak up for God. No, I'm going to let the Scripture teach how I do this from the whole of Scripture. And sometimes he says speak and sometimes he says don't speak. Go back to Matthew and look at chapter 9 again. And now look at verses 32 through 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we're not going to break this section of Scripture down, and we're not going to read you the, other, the reason why, but if you, when we get to Matthew 12, 22 through 32, when we get to Matthew 12, 22 through 32, you'll see why I'm not breaking this passage down, because it's dealt with in much more detail then. Because when we get to Matthew 12, 22 through 32, you're going to see Jesus again being accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus goes into great detail in his answer at that, and I'm going to save it for them. But there's one thing I want to do from this section here before we move on to the last section in our closing tonight. I want you to notice the completely different responses by the, all the people who saw the same miracle. Jesus cast the demon out of this man. The demon had him, become, had him mute where he couldn't speak. And as soon as Jesus released the demon from him, the man begins to speak. And the crowds are marveling, saying, never with anything like this seen in Israel. This is impressive. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Please listen to me. Stop thinking that you have influence on whether people believe or not. You say, oh, I don't think I do. Oh, yes, you do. I want a show of hands, and I want honesty tonight, because it'll be good for you. I'm going to ask a question I already know the answer to, but it'll be good for you to admit it, all right? I'm not trying to be Jesus. I'm just trying to be like him. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, someone else would do a better job of sharing the gospel with this person than me? We all have. We all have. That means you think it has something to do with you. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God and his word and those people who are listening. Paul said, if what I say to you makes sense, give glory to God. If what it does, if I say doesn't make sense, Satan's blinded your eyes. He, he didn't take any credit either way. And Jesus does this miracle. Some people are like, wow. Others are like, eh, this is being done by demons. Go to Acts chapter 28. 
Look at verses 17 through 24. In Acts chapter 28, verse 17, Paul's in Rome, and after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews there in Rome. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom, excuse me, customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. By the way, the hope of Israel is the promised one, the Messiah, the son of David. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, Paul. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, that's Christianity, the way, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. Now when they had point, appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Isn't that interesting? Paul preached all day, from the scriptures, some believed, some didn't. That's just how it's going to be, folks. Stop being lied to by the enemy that there's other people that could do a better job than you. And believe that if they believe, it's because God opened their eyes, not because you worded it real good or knew the scriptures. Share with them the truth about Jesus. Share whatever he tells you to say. He's going to give you the words. And just trust that what he's going to do, he's going to do. That's why you hear me pray every time before we get started. Thank you, God, for what you're going to do. Because I just stand here and say, this is what his word said. This is what he's told me to write down. This is what his, he had me put in my notes. This is what he's leading me to say at the time in, in through the spirit as I'm teaching you. But whether you get it or not, that's between you and God. It's not tied to how well I do. Years ago as a young preacher, I used to go back and examine how I did all the time. And I stopped doing that. I want you to go and speak when he tells you to speak and don't when he tells you not to. Don't live by your principles. No, live by the Spirit. Don't say, well, I have a way that I do things. Well, that's not a good thing to say when we're supposed to be people who do what God says to do, not how you do things. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 37, we'll close with this tonight. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Does anybody know why Jesus went regularly to the synagogues? If you were to go back and look at Luke chapter 4, verse 16, you don't have to. You'll see that he went into his hometown and went in on the Sabbath in the synagogue, which was his custom, it said. Why did Jesus regularly go to the synagogues to preach? It would definitely be about my father's business, but it's more than that. Listen, because Jesus, too, only went and spoke where the father had him to. And his commission was to go mainly to
to the Jews. Jesus himself only went where the Father told him to go, when the Father told him to go. Remember that whole Lazarus story we were reading in earlier? If you go earlier in that story, you'll see that Mary and Martha call out to him and say, hey, he's sick. Hurry up and get here. Lord, you're out there healing all these people. The one you love is sick. And Jesus doesn't move. And he lets him die. And then he goes. John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father's always at his work to this very day. And then he says, I'm to him working. But then in verse 19, he says, the son only does what the father tells him to do. He lived his life in obedience to the father. He went where the father told him to go. And he didn't go where the father didn't tell him to go. Did he never speak to a Gentile? No. You see in John chapter 4, the woman, the Samaritan woman, the Bible says, and I love the King James way they word it in the King James, he must needs go through, through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. The Spirit of God led him to that woman at the well at that moment. In Matthew 15, you'll see him deal with a woman in Tyre and Sidon. Well, let's deal with that passage. Go to Matthew 15. Something interesting comes out of that. In Matthew chapter 15, look at verses 21 through 28. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. By the way, is she a Gentile or a Jew? Gentile. She came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now listen closely. I'm going to break this passage down in much more detail when we get there, because there's so much here I can't wait to show you. But the brief thing I want you to see is this. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He made that very clear. That's who he was sent to. Yet in this instance, there's a woman there, and he knew she was going to be there. And she comes and she says, help. My daughter's got a demon. He doesn't even speak to her. She keeps calling out to him. And the disciples say, come and send her away. She's driving us nuts. He said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to throw the children's bread to the dogs. And her answer is, then I'll be a dog. You're the only one that has what I need, and even dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. So if I have to be a dog, I'll be a dog. I, you're the only one that can help me. And he says, woman, you got great faith. Did he know that she had that kind of faith? Of course he did, but he brought it out again. And that's for the sake of the people of Israel that he was sent to, that they would hear this woman's faith. But he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I have struggled with that all day long today, that very... Well, uh, yes, God's awesome. I didn't understand what, first of all, he didn't give her a word at all. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, he, he just, it, it seemed like to me he was only uh, there for the Jews. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he is only there for the Jews, because that was what his father sent him to. As you're going to see when we get to our next study in Matthew 10, there are times that God says, I only want you to work right here for now. Listen closely, though. Let me ask you a question. Have there been times in your personal walk with the Lord that you prayed and he was silent? All of us. Have there been times you called out to him and he doesn't answer? Oh, but if you really believe, you'll keep calling. You'll keep waiting. You won't go whether you'll stay. I ain't going anywhere, Lord. You're the only one that has. And he has his purposes. He has his reasons. Now listen closely, though. 
with what we hopefully understand about how people ever even come to faith. The Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Jesus knew for this woman to be calling out to him like that, even though she was a Gentile, the Father had already begun his work. We're going to see that next week. A lot of what we're going to be dealing with right now, we'll deal with next week in our Matthew 10 study. Because he sends his disciples out two by two and he says to them, when you go into a house, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay. If not, move on. In other words, the Father's already at work in his harvest field ahead of us, folks. We don't go to, folks, we don't have to go out there and do the work. We don't have to till the soil. We don't have to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is just go out into the harvest field and learn how to, and we're going to deal with that next week, squeeze and sniff and thump people without getting arrested to find out where they are and God's bringing them to, right, to ripeness. This is his harvest field. I'm going to just say this to you. You'll hear it again tomorrow, next week. When you ladies go to the grocery store, just because they got cantaloupe doesn't mean that it's ripe, right? You all have your processes that you put the cantaloupe through. Some of you probably roll it down the aisle and say, oh, it's breaking to the left a little bit. I don't think that one's right. No, you probably squeeze it or sniff it or thump it, right? I want to teach you next week how to go into the harvest field and look where God's at work. That's what Jesus was teaching them to do. When you go into a town, learn to recognize where my father's at work. And in this situation, the father was already at work in that woman, but his being silent brought it out. And he dealt with, so don't hear that he never cared for the Gentiles. No, no, no. But who was he sent to? The lost sheep of Israel, the Jews. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the what? The Jew first, and then the Gentile. God has a purpose. He has a plan. Guess what? God has dispensations. He works in different ways at different times for His purposes. And we, trying to think we're helping God come up with our strategies and our marketing and our systems and all our plans to go reach our neighborhood. And we come together and we come up with all these strategies to hit every house. And it sounds real good. And the Father says, I'm already working my plan. Why don't you just work with me and go to the places I send you when I send you and lead me to do the stuff I'm going to do in my time. But God, we could do it so much better if we could get everybody to just... That's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? When we come up with our plans, we think we can do it better than the Holy Spirit. Again, keep me from preaching next week's study. Come back next week. I can't wait to show you how to go into his harvest field and recognize where he's at work. It makes it fun. And it's easy, actually, to when you know when the Spirit of God's saying, don't talk to him right now. It's not time. That's freeing. It's very, very freeing. As we close, we see Jesus had compassion on the people. Why? How did he see them? Look, look closely. Look at what it says. He saw them as harassed and helpless. As people without a shepherd. That's part of what God was saying to me as I was playing golf with Michael yesterday. He, he doesn't know any better. He's actually miserable. I just prayed for him and I've been praying for him. And I'll... Ask you when God brings him to your mind, pray for Michael. That what God's doing in Michael's heart would take root. I'm going to ask you a question as we close tonight. Do you see the lost world in this way? If not, you don't have the love of Jesus in your heart. You don't see the world as he does. 
While Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And actually, if you do a study of that passage in the Greek, and by the way, I'm not super smart in the Greek, but there are people that are, and God's blessed me with a good memory. That passage actually reads in the Greek like Jesus was saying it the whole time they were nailing him to the cross, the whole time that he was there. Imagine it this way. Erwin Lutzer in his book, Cries from the Cross, brings this out. Imagine Jesus quietly, not under his breath, but barely above that of a whisper, while they were nailing him, saying to him, saying out loud, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what to do. As he stood him up, he keeps saying it. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We've always read it as, he said it one time, Father, forgive them. No, it actually reads in the Greek that he was saying it over and over and over. And personally, I think that's why when there are two thieves making fun of him in the Gospel of Matthew, by the end of Luke, we see that one of them changes his mind. It was probably because the whole time he was next to Jesus, Jesus kept calling out, Father, don't, they don't know what they're doing. Father, don't hold it against them. Father, they don't know what they're doing. Father, don't hold it against them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what do we see Stephen do as they're putting him to death? as they're stoning him, as he's falling down from the stones, he says, Father, don't hold this against them. The church today claps when we see somebody get what we think they deserve. And that means we really don't have the heart of the Father. Someone shows up in your church this Sunday and they're not dressed like they should or they don't act like they should or they don't smell like you want them to or they actually bring a drink into the sanctuary, whatever it is they did that you think is so horrible. Why don't you go into church this Sunday beforehand and say, God, give me your eyes. Help me to see people as you see them. Help me to see them. If they don't know you, they're harassed. They're helpless. They're under the power of Satan. And I think the Bible says they're slaves of Satan. That can't be fun, folks. My prayer is that God would give us his heart for the people around us and that you will be one of those people. I love you. Let that help you where we're going to go next week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.